call from Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Hello, uglies. This is Swanthula here to welcome you to another spine-tingling episode of Creatures of the Night. I do hope your holiday season is going horribly, and here to help me make merriment out of your misery is my sister in crime, Drac Morda. Drac, darling, tell us something terrible, won't you? Well, I don't have to make anything up because, as you know, (laughs) and listeners at home may not know this, but uh, those of us that live in Los Angeles and the Hollywood area are on another lockdown. They don't like to call it a lockdown. They like to call it safer at home, which basically means you can't leave your house again uh, like we were doing months ago. We have now returned to that. So, um, yeah, I don't really need to make up a terrible thing that's happening because there already are terrible things. Yeah. You know, what I want listeners to know, because I'm not sure that they're aware, is that in other parts of the country, they're enjoying a lot more freedoms than they are here in Los Angeles and some cities on the West Coast. Uh, I feel like we've never really left like the purple zone. You know, it goes like all the hot colors up to red and then beyond that is purple. And that's where we've pretty much been living, I feel like, through the summer. Here we are again. So I guess we buckle up and get ready for a very cozy holiday season. But, you know, I will say that I do not intend on taking it lying down just like we did the first time. I feel like we will get creative and we will make the best out of it. And, you know, I think there's a bunch of projects we have that we're working on that we can talk about today on the podcast that will give people uh, who are also in lockdown something to look forward to to keep them entertained. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did that when it came to Halloween. We gave out a bunch of advice, ways that people can celebrate the season, maybe not how they're used to, but certainly ways to make it special and magical, even if it's from the confines of the solitude of their own household. And I think we need to make a little magic out of these holidays, too. And I want to make an announcement uh, kind of for that reason. We've once again teamed up with PEG. And these are the producers behind the Digital Drag Fest, which happened over the summer, which we were a part of. I think for those of you that saw our Theater Macabre show or the Boulay Brothers Horror Picture show, you may know exactly what I'm talking about. But we're teaming up with them again to be part of the New Year's Queens, which is basically a live 11-hour global event counting us out of this horrible year, which is 2020, and hopefully a magical and kind of memorable way. Yeah, we are planning a pretty intense show schedule for that event. I think our show is going to be something like 40, 45 minutes long, something around there. And it, yeah, I know it's going to be a long one, but I'm excited about it. I think that the first digital show that we did, which was really more like a movie live, but then we recorded it and had to do different parts of it. But, you know, I think that that was very challenging and rewarding. And I think that this will be as well. Absolutely. You know, I'm kind of looking forward to it because I know uh, we're going to come at this series of performances in the same way that we have the other two shows that we did digitally, which is sort of like with a lot of meaning, there'll be sort of ritual aspects that really kind of remind us of the lessons that we may have learned this season and bring us in and through a new year. And hopefully that will inspire some people that may see the show. 
We throw a gigantic New Year's Eve ball every year here in Los Angeles. It's called New Queer's Eve. We've been doing it in some form or another for 20 years. Yes. And I have to say, I don't think there's any other event that I can think of that has the energy in the room that that moment has when the clock strikes midnight at our New Year's Eve ball and just the queer superstars that come together and everybody. It's such a fantastic feeling. But last year, and this is something me and you have talked about, Mm -hmm. it was not such a fantastic feeling. I mean, the midnight drop was great. And we were there with Orville Peck and Trixie Mattel and so many people. I can't even remember everyone that was present of note that our listeners might know, but it was insane. Like the amount of people that were there, it exceeded any event we had ever done and tons of notable people came out. So it wasn't that that was in question, but there was a weird undercurrent of trouble in the air. I felt all night, right? There's that superstition that the way you spend New Year's Eve is the way the rest of your year will go. And I thought it was odd because a couple of things happened that night that stood out to me. One being the music that we picked to play after the midnight hour was dancing on my own, which was Mm kind of somber for us. We usually pick something very celebratory. And also I came down with a flu, like right at midnight, I had a fever and so did a bunch of people around us. So there was something going around in the community at the time. And those two things have been so prevalent in this last year, people being sick, people being by themselves in quarantine. And it's, I think it's kind of eerie. Yeah, no, I think we had a little bit of, I don't know, premonition, some type of sensitivity, and the way that we spent our New Year's absolutely did ripple through the entirety of the year. I'm doubling down on what I said before about our digital show for New Year's Eve. We are going to acknowledge that. We're going to dispel it and invite some new energy in for 2021. I have a little bit of guilt because I know so many people spend New Year's Eve with us and look forward to that. I mean, there's people that I look into the crowd who I know they met on New Year's Eve at our events and are together now for like five, six years, whatever, and have spent, you know, so many other holidays with us. And I felt like, I don't know, maybe it was premonition or maybe we like <laughs> inadvertently cursed 2020. And no. I feel, I'm telling you, I sometimes I think it and I feel because the energy is so intense in that room and we project it out into the crowd and it just was off. And I felt like it was like a spell that went wrong. So I feel like this digital show has the pressure of resetting that and bringing us into a new era for 2021. And that's what I hope we will be able to achieve. Same. Although I think I'm coming at it from a completely different direction, but our objectives are the same. So yeah, it should be good. A little bit of pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Just just the entire weight of the year post-COVID pandemic for 10 months. Anyway, I want to move on because uh, we introduced a new segment to the podcast a couple of episodes ago, and that was our literary section where we chose Stephen King's short story, Children of the Corn, as our first book. And I kind of think it went really well. It was successful, and a lot of our listeners went out and bought the book. They bought Night Shift and read the short story, and this way we were able to talk about the book with full spoilers because we invited all of our listeners to do that. So I have our second reading assignment up on deck. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. It's going to be Clive Barker's horror novella, The Hellbound Heart, which of course is the basis for the Hellraiser movie. The story features a hedonist criminal acquiring a mystical puzzle box, which can be used to summon the Cenobites, demonic beings who do not distinguish between pain and pleasure. And you know, this is going to be a great read and I am super excited. I would encourage people to 
read the short, but also rewatch Hellraiser. So you'll get some of the references that we talk about when we discuss it on the podcast. And I'm excited for it. Now, we, so far, we've given people very easy tasks because I know a lot of people don't like to read today. It even feels stupid to say that, but that's the truth. Uh, yeah. It's hard to get people to read book. So I think so far, the reading assignments have been very light. But I do think in the next podcast when we give the reading assignment, I like it to be a full book. It doesn't have to be super long, but I have a couple of things in mind that I think will keep people entertained and maybe give them like a month to read it. I think Hellbound Heart is maybe three or four times longer than um, Children of the Corn. And then we can go to like full-blown like novel if you want to for the next it one. It starts somewhere. It started with Ian in an S&M chair restrained with the letter C-A-T in front of him. That's what? how it started. <laughs> and then now we've gotten to a short. And now I think we can take him all the way to a full book and the listeners can grow with us. I think that sounds great. And since you <laughs> named her and called her to existence, I think it's time we welcome our co-hostess and sister in crime to the podcast. She keeps us on our toes and up to date with all the news from the worlds of drag and horror in Hollywood. Please welcome Ms. Ian DeVogler. Hey, ladies. How are you? We are great. How are you? I am wonderful. Although I will say I'm having a little bit of PTSD about this reading <laughs> assignment that's coming up. Uh, mm-hmm. As a child, I was forced to do workbooks every summer. So mm-hmm. the idea of having to read a full book, I'm just I'm, I'm like in a panic right now. But I, I welcome it. I think you can handle it. I have a feeling that you can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I have a feeling you have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> Whether I can handle it is really definitely not the question. It's, uh, will I get it done? And the answer is, of course, yes, I will. So I'm excited. Usually, I know you try to cram right before um, we record, but you're not going to be able to do that this time. You've got to save a few days to read this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually, I'm really excited about the idea of something that's a little bit longer than Children of the Corn was. I think being able to sit down every night and be like, okay, cool, I'm going to put in, you know, 20 pages here, 20 pages there. It's exciting. People don't do that anymore. So I can't wait. We have to encourage people to read or we're going to elect someone worse than Trump as a society. That is my theory. And so it is my job. (laughs) Like I'm driving the fucking magic school bus around the universe to (laughs) make people learn how to read. (laughs) Educate the children. (laughs) Literally. Satanic Miss Frizzle. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what that is, but whatever. It is what it is. I don't know. I feel like she's kind of fierce, but whatever. Teach their own. I've never watched it, so I don't know. But I saw it in the background once, and I thought it looked ridiculous. But I believe that she drove around and taught people things, so close enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you really need to know. (laughs) Truly. Ian, why don't you tell us what news you have brought before us today from the glamorous worlds of dragon horror? While the world may seem like it stops moving every year during the Thanksgiving holiday, the world of horror kept on slashing this time around, and I'm actually really excited to share these updates with the listeners. So let's get started with some updates from our favorite classic horror movie slashers. We've had a through line with our episodes and updates about the new Scream movie since episode 4, where we reviewed the original 1996 classic, so I'm really excited to share that not only has Scream 5 officially finished filming, but the franchise creator, Kevin Williamson, has shared the title of the upcoming sequel. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. The film will simply be called Scream. <laughs> hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Exactly. Not. I'm like, Halloween did that too, you know, with this last installment. So I guess they're like, this is the new thing to do. Let's do it. 
Scream 5 will officially be coming to theaters on January 14th, 2022. So we have a little bit of a wait, but I think it's definitely going to be worth it. You know, I understand building hype for these projects. <laughs> oh, um, but I, I have to say, you know, I don't understand why these studios can't just keep their fucking mouth shut for a little while. Like, why do <laughs> I don't need to hear that you're coming out with a movie in three years. Like, what? why do I need to hear that? And the thing is, because by the time it comes, I'm like, okay, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I've heard the mm-hmm. whole thing. There's spoilers. There's variety articles. There's I've seen pictures. It's like I've seen the whole fucking movie before it even comes out. Yeah, it's total overkill. Like, okay, there's the excitement of hearing, and then there's the excitement of the updates. But when you said 2022, I'm like, <gasps> wah, wah. Like, who Right, cares? we're hearing like, about uh-huh. this now. I mean, that's a long time from now. And since we do produce things and we do keep our mouth shut about them, I think I know that it can be done. I mean, we didn't tell anybody about Resurrection. Even half the crew didn't know that it was happening <laughs> until it came out. <laughs> Listen, I didn't know it was happening until I was on the bus. <laughs> And that's how you keep a secret. Well, speaking of franchises that we unabashedly love here on Creatures of the Night, the house from Halloween 5 is officially on the market for sale. Uh, The house, located in Salt Lake City, was built in 1886, and there are a bunch of photos online that are available for eagle-eyed fans who want to look for the locations where some of the iconic scenes were filmed. You can find some cool Easter eggs in there. But I do have a warning. Uh, The exterior paint job and the interior decorating are definitely more like barbie early 2000s acid trip than like the dark like blue hues in the film it's a little weird to look at but drac i feel like you would totally enjoy seeing it is it from it's from halloween five yes huh oh i bet you okay i think that's gonna be jamie's house right it's the house Mm -hmm. that rachel lived in it's not actually michael myers house right yes that's correct I see. Nobody wants that house. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, nobody wants that house, but I just have to throw this in there because you said the buzzwords of the week, which is Salt Lake City. The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. I'm just throwing it out there. tonight. We're not going there again. It's another uh, unsung horror genre that people need to get into. It's also amazing. Okay, we can move on, but I I put it out there. (laughs) I remember in Halloween 5, that house, and I remember the whole time I'm thinking, God, it's so close to all these. I was like, the house itself was cute, but I'm like, it's so close to these other houses. Who the hell would want to live there? So I have no interest. (laughs) Well, if if anyone does want to go look at it, it's a total nightmare. So I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll just scrap that whole thing. Um, <laughs> I do have another slasher-related news story in my uh, triptych of terror that involves a new nightmare, not on Elm Street, but in Hawkins, Indiana. Robert England will be joining the new season of Stranger Things, uh, not as Freddy Krueger, but as a character named Victor Creel, who is described as a disturbed man imprisoned in a psychiatric hospital after committing a gruesome murder in the 1950s. The details surrounding Robert England's inclusion in the new season are super limited, but I'll keep you posted if I hear anything more. I know we have some huge Nightmare on Elm Street fans and Robert England fans, so could be cool. Yeah, and Stranger Things fans. I love Stranger Things. It's exciting to think Robert England is going to join the cast. I think it's appropriate, especially with the you know the whole 80s vibe. But it's kind of like, sounds like it's Robert England playing Michael Myers this time, right? Or something like that. It's like a hybrid mashup. I read something, and I'm not sure you know, 100% the credibility, but they were saying that the role is also trying to pay homage to Freddy Krueger, that the murder that he had done was like a bunch of child murders, and that he maybe, I mean, if they do this, it'll be completely off the rails, but he visits them in their dreams. I'm like, that nah. just that just the movie, mama. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, all the people in Stranger Things are kids. Although, actually, they're like teenagers now, right? So it doesn't count. No, that oh. does count. Like, let, let's remember A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, perhaps one of the best oh. in, in the oh. franchise. Yeah, but I mean, its original of... murders were like kids. Little kids, right? yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Eleven, outside of the show, dresses like she's like a 45-year-old woman. So, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's uh, why do I feel like that's something you want to do? <laughs> uh, it definitely is. Like everyone's like always trying to trash her. They're like, "Ugh, why did she dress like you know such like an adult or like such a prostitute?" And I'm like, "Okay, that is fashion, honey." <laughs> like, uh, er, back up, prostitute. That's a first. I've, I've never heard that word before. <laughs> oh, honey, you are welcome for prostitute. Holy shit! I was friends with a lot of prostitutes in high school. What is a prostitute? A ho daughter. Oh, oh, okay, oh, gotcha. Yes, okay. exactly. It's a ho daughter. Oh, a slutty kid. Got it. Mm-hmm. There you go. Well, now for a news story that's not at all about prostitutes or slutty kids, but is about classic horror movies with a little bit of cryptozoology. The Academy Museum of Motion Pictures has just installed the fourth, final, and only surviving shark model built for the original 1975 film Jaws for permanent display. The version of the model was cast for photo ops at Universal Studios Hollywood following the film's release in 1975, and it was there until 1990, but then it just went to a junkyard where it sat until someone basically discovered it and restored it. Uh, The model is the largest item on display at the museum. It's over 25 feet long, and the mouth of the shark is 5 feet wide. It's going to be greeting guests when the museum reopens in 2021, and I feel like we should definitely take a Creatures of the Night field trip and go see it. I'm all for it. I think that's crazy that it ended up in a junkyard. How did that happen? From what I read, Universal Studios Hollywood basically just said, we don't have room for this. It's a 25-foot shark. What are we going to do with it? And they just kind of let it go. And the owner of the junkyard actually was the one who came forward recently and was like, I don't want this. The fiberglass is kind of you know deteriorating. Could I give this to the Academy? And they just were like, oh my gosh, yes. So they went through the process of restoring it and getting it verified. And it looks great. There's some photos online and it's like really impressive. I would love to see that in person. That's a really cool story. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, talk about like a treasure find and like a literal heap of like junk. That's kind of amazing. If only they had to offer up back then, someone could have bought it a long time ago. <laughs> What's that show where they like go around and they, they like basically buy old shit that people like find in their attic and they're like, that's worth like $500,000. I mean, I feel like it's like a version of that. Uh, Antiques Roadshow? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Or isn't there another one like a pawn show where it's like a bunch of straight oh. people? Pawn stars. Totally. Oh, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how Ian knows them all. He has all their names right at his fingertips. <laughs> He's like, no, it's Junk Traders. No, it's Antiques Roadshow. No, I mean, it's Pawn Stars. <laughs> Ooh, I'm like sweating bullets over here. You guys are going to find my like Finsta account where all I do is talk about Pawn Stars. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, with all the classic horror movie updates, I did also want to mention a story that I found interesting. Uh, it's about Hulu's latest horror movie called Run. The film stars my favorite modern screen queen sarah paulson and it debuted exclusively on hulu last week the story here is that it broke a record for hulu as their most streamed movie on their platform ever um it received super positive reviews including a glowing recommendation from stephen king and you know while this could just be hulu promoting their own stuff i do think it's cool to see a horror movie breaking records for the platform and especially one with an out lesbian actor in a lead role you're telling me that a sarah paulson movie <laughs> What's the most watched movie ever on Hulu? Listen, I don't make the articles up. I just read them. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> 
seems like a, a deep cut to be like the most watched movie. I mean, do they not have a lot of movies on there? I don't have Hulu. What do you think? I don't have Hulu either, so maybe we're kind of, you know, like in our own little echo chamber here. So yeah, and I think this is kind of like, it's like the Gypsy Rose story, and it's also like Misery. And I don't know, all the reviews have been saying that it's really good. So who knows? Maybe I'll check it out. I'll, I'll give you guys my take on it. Thank you. Please do. Yeah, of that course. sounds kind of interesting. Yeah. And last but 100% not least, I feel like we have to talk about the Utah monolith, which basically Mm. took the internet by storm the last few days. And as of today's recording, there's a new twist to the story. This final news story today is really strange. I think listeners are going to have a ton of theories, which I live for. On November 18th, Utah Public Safety Department researchers were conducting a population survey on bighorn sheep in southwestern Utah when they discovered a giant metal monolith standing vertically among the red rocks of the canyon. It wasn't long before internet sleuths were able to find the location of the monolith by reverse geolocation and tracking the flight plans of the research aircraft, and people began to make the trek into the mountains to see the monolith up close for themselves. Upon inspection, people were able to determine that the structure was hollow, made of aluminum, and measured roughly 12 feet tall. There were rivets on all three sides, indicating it was man-made, but so far, no one has come forward to claim that they were the one to place the structure on the ground. It kind of seemed like the story was reaching its end, but then, like I said, today I was doing some more research, and articles started popping up that the monolith has gone missing, and there's no immediate evidence to suggest who took it or why. It kind of appeared one day, and suddenly, it's gone. I read that too after we talked about it earlier today. Um, I got that update and I was like, oh, I wonder if he's going to you know, know about this before he does the news tonight. So I was excited to surprise you with that, but I'm glad that you found <laughs> out. That means you actually are doing your research, which I appreciate. <laughs> Listen, you guys, I think maybe it's me alone. I think I could solve the puzzle behind this uh, monolith in Utah. There's only two words that need to be given as the answer to this riddle. Stunt queens. These are, <laughs> these are stunt. These are stunt queen artists, and and I'm here for it because it's thought provoking. You know, they they introduce like a strange, you know, strange for the environment, uh, man made material inside this kind of like naturally intoxicating environment, and it and it conjures up like visions of outer space and visitations from extraterrestrials, and certainly like the 2001 Space Odyssey that that black monolith that's in that movie. So you know, for us in this weird vortex of like COVID and staying home, at least a story like this sends my mind and my creativity kind of whirling. So I give it up to the stunt queens that tried to pull that shit. I heard that they shoot Westworld in a really close area. I don't know if you saw that, Ian, and that they thought maybe this was a prop left over from Westworld that they just installed. But mm-hmm. my feeling was now that it got all this press and the the park authority was like, this is illegal to do. We will find you, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden it disappeared. I'm like, you know, the producer of Westworld was like, get that shit out of there right now. Like, what? <laughs> my God, get that out of there. <laughs> one final piece that I did think was interesting, though, is there's this one guy on the internet who he's a Redditor and he's been doing a ton of additional research. He went through satellite photography of the area for like the past five years. And yes, found that. did I you see that? It. No, I didn't see it. But I just love that people are out there and that, that they would go to those lengths. Yes. There, there. I just love it. Totally. So he was looking through all the satellite photography and basically like every time that a new satellite photo would get taken of the area, he would like mark it, you know, is where's the where's the structure? And on April 2015, no structure. October 2015, there's a photograph with the monolith there. So to me, that's honestly, I mean, whether it's an artist or if it's an alien or whoever it is, 
basically laying dormant, waiting to be found by like unsuspecting people. There's just this 12 foot structure in the middle of the mountains. I'm like, that is like real life horror to me. So do you think it was there for five years? Yeah, there's there's photographs um, that go back all the way five years, and it's just been staying there, and no one has found it. Why wow. was there a gap? They take a gap in between taking the photos. Oh, so, okay, so they do go- Google Earth photos, and then, like, a few months later, they'll do another one, like that kind of mm-hmm. thing? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay. You know, yeah. I'd love to think it was aliens. Um, I mean, this year certainly warrants it between Trump and the pandemic. I'm like, we all <laughs> are expecting a UFO or a comet or something. So... I kind of would love that, but it's not. We all know that it's not. <laughs> Unfortunately. It's like Moby or some annoying straight person, I'm sure. <laughs> On that note, Ian, thank you for all of your informative <laughs> updates. Um, we're going to shift gears because the time has come to invoke the spirits of the silver screen as we begin our creature feature movie review. Now, this episode we have chosen from writer-director Brandon Cronenberg. Yes, that's the horror legend David Cronenberg's son, his psychological sci-fi horror flick, Possessor. Possessor focuses on Tasia Voss, who is an elite corporate assassin who takes control of other people's bodies using brain implant technology to execute high-profile targets. It's streaming now, and um, I actually just watched this today, and I'm, it's very fresh for me, so I'm kind of excited to see what you guys thought of it. I mean, I don't know how you guys felt about it. I'll give you a a quick opinion about my feelings on it. I mean, I, I felt that it was slow and dry in a way that didn't work for me. Um, it didn't really hold my interest. I I mean, I'm just going in right now, but this is how I feel. I felt it was sort of bleak and somber, uh, which I feel like is becoming less tolerable for these kind of movies because we live in such a bleak and somber reality with the pandemic Mm. and everything. It just was dry and slow to me. And I don't know. I wasn't a huge fan of it. What what did you think, Ian? Well, before you say, I'm going to just, just as a guess, because you set the stage saying that it was like very dry and bleak and, you know, somber and sobering. And (laughs) these are, these are ingredients for like Ian's favorite meal. So like, let me pass it to you. What did you think, Ian? So it's somber, it's bleak, it's over the top, it's really gory and violent. I fucking love this movie so much. Like, I saw the trailer for it, and I instantly was like, oh my god, I want to see this. And I was, like, gripped the entire time. Like, for all the reasons that Drac is saying that she didn't like it, I loved it. Like, I thought it was just grim and depressing and brutal and... You know, I won't spoil the ending, but even the ending, it just leaves such a sour taste in your mouth. I was like, oh my God, I could watch this movie all day, every day. I felt too that it was brutal. That's one of the notes that I wrote down. I guess I feel that, you know, that's that's pretty much what it had to offer. There were some very brutal scenes, but I don't know that I felt horrified at any point. I was sort of depressed or sort of like, okay, this is like, to me, a bad LSD trip. Um, you know, without the murder, of course. <laughs> I don't know, man. That that sounds like a, a different kind of LSD trip. <laughs> to me, I just, I don't know. I just didn't feel like it had a big, you know, a rise or a middle or an, and it just sort of was, I don't know, consistently a little dull. What, what did you think, Swan? I think the movie Possessor had a lot of, um, 
atmosphere and the mood that it created was definitely palpable. Like I was kind of nervous and uncomfortable for, for like an hour and 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, oh my God, like I need to fucking drink a water. Like I am just like, I'm, <laughs> I'm so on edge because we had this environment of like uncertainty, like mental uncertainty. And then because of the violence of the movie, like it could, it could turn violent at any second. And it was unexpected a lot of the times that it became violent. And it was also very surreal when it became violent, kind of like borderlining on Cronenberg body horror that we're familiar with. You know, we saw some of that. But overall, I think the acting was like out of this world. Like, yes, Andrea Riceborough as the main character, but also Christopher Abbott as Colin Tate. Like these two, you know, I thought I was spellbound with Andrea's portrayal as the main character, Tasia Voss. But then, you know, when we shift focus to the character Colin Tate, I was like, oh my God, this guy is unbelievable. Like I wasn't questioning the story and the characters like for a second. And and they were really complex too. Mm-hmm. So it may have been easy to be like, oh God, I, this is hokey or this is corny, but I, I never really did. Um, I just thought the acting was exceptional. I actually really did like this movie. I kind of agree with both of you though. Like sort of the initial scene had me gripped because it introduced all of this like sci-fi horror, super, uh, you know, imaginative concepts. And I felt really like kind of engaged to learn about this world that was being created. But the middle was a little bit of like a desert of boredom, almost a little bit, or or not boredom, Mm -hmm. but just kind of monotony a little. But then the, the end just like, was beyond for me. I mean, it was like full stop gag, like super thought provoking, you know, and it kind of, it it teased at a continuation of the story and like the conditioning of this kind of like possessor psychic assassin chick. Like it was fucking awesome. I'm a little lost at what, at what the writer wanted us to feel at the end, you know, like I'm not sure what we were supposed to, uh, what feeling we're supposed to walk away from seeing the, doctor or i don't know what she would be actually the person that ended up going in as well to you know pull the other character out i'm not sure what we were supposed to be left with feeling there what what do you guys think the message was there i i have a strong thought but i, I want to hear ian's thought i felt like when tasia goes through that test again and she uh, she looks at the butterfly thing and it's kind of a test of like oh you know how well are you connecting to your own kind of psyche I feel like she has completely broken from her own psyche. Like, there is no turning back. This person is a monster now. She is exactly the person wearing her own, like, a mask made of her own flesh. She is completely detached from reality, from humanity, and there is no turning back. Like, this is a monster. And I just loved it. Yeah, I'm thinking something parallel to that. Um, And for me, the thought, you know, the question was, you know, what did the writer maybe want you to feel by the end of this movie and seeing that like closing scene where she's kind of going over some of the same artifacts from her childhood and she's able to recall with detail, like what, what is, this is mine, this isn't mine. Oh, this was given to me by my grandfather, Mm -hmm. but I never met him and all these details. And at the beginning, she, she gives, you know, kind of intimate details about remembering killing that butterfly, mounting it, but then feeling bad for it, like specifically. Mm -hmm. But by the end, she says, oh, I remember this and on this. And she gives exactly the same answers. But when we get to that butterfly, she says, yes, I remember killing this and I remember mounting it. And then she stops. And then the then who I see as her conditioner, she's like, very good. And it is like a full detachment from regret or remorse. And she she just becomes a better version of like a killer. 
So do you think that the the conditioner that was her goal the whole time that she sort of feigned care for this person, but that ultimately she was just trying to turn her into a bloodthirsty killer and that was her goal? Yeah, I don't think she feigned care. I think she's a businesswoman and she Mm -hmm. is also one of those. I mean, as we learn, I mean, we're kind of spilling the tea, but, you know, her job is to condition Tazia Vox to be like the best at her job she can be. Because at the beginning, she, she says something like, it takes a very particular mm-hmm. uh, set, set of personality traits to do this. And I feel like what they were saying was that it's a very rare combination of, of personality traits to be able to handle this kind of like mental ordeal and, and then actually killing people and like the whole thing. It's, I mean, it's really, I mean, I don't even know what the right word to be to describe it. It's, it's sort of unbelievable me- yeah. uh, mental taxing. I feel like one of the things that I really love about the movie and also about our conversation is I feel like this film is honestly kind of unpalatable for a lot of people. Um, I really love it, but I think that's kind of part of the reason why I love it is it's not for everyone. You know, it's it's like like Drack had said and like we were kind of repeating, like it's super bleak. It's really heady. Um, some of the scenes are, you know, maybe they bite off a little bit more than they can chew. And then when you get to the violence, it's like... I mean, hyper-violence. I mean, the breaking of teeth, even the the sex scene that happens kind of in this, like, you know, uh, the scene where Tasia and Colin are kind of vying for control of this one body. Like, the whole movie kind of feels almost like a movie like, oh, God, I would never show my parents this movie or whatever. Um, and I feel like there's there's kind of a strength in that. Like, I feel like sometimes, you know, movies are afraid to kind of go there. They're going to say, okay, well, we want to make sure that we're palatable to a, a wide audience versus a film like this, which I feel like is pretty, you know, standard in kind of Cronenberg's legacy um, to have his son kind of, you know, emulate that and say, this movie is for a very specific person and let's go ahead and make this movie full force. Mm -hmm. I think that's easy to do when you have a name and automatic backing though. You know, you can take bigger risks like that where you're not concerned with what people think about it. But on that note, you know, there was no, there were no likable characters in the film or characters that you feel that you could root for. Right. Because everyone was kind of horrible. Sure. Sure. And again, a movie that I love, a car- a movie with no heroes, just morally gray assholes. Yeah, not to say that a, a movie needs a hero or a likable character to be successful, but because this movie was so psychological, it seemed that it's almost like it was missing someone that you could latch on to in a way. It almost yeah. felt like you were just as lost as she was in, in these people's minds because you just didn't know, who do I want to win? Or, or what would I think would be a, even a favorable outcome? So when that doesn't happen, I have a feeling. You know, It was sort of like clearly bleak the whole time. I feel you on that. I think that for me, I look at... I look at those as kind of strengths and there, there are things in the movie that I think are kind of like filmic ways that they support that exact feeling of there, there is no one to root for. And the whole movie is about, you know, this character who she is a possessor. She's kind of a ghost. She, she's not even a real person at the end of the day. Like she spends her whole life inhabiting these other vessels. So the movie itself feels very hollow and very lifeless um, and almost kind of like devoid of emotional attachments. Um, I do want to talk about some of the like the effects for a second, if I can, just because I they put out this uh, this reel. It's like a ten minute thing about how they did all the effects, and they did almost all of them practically. So the scene where you know they're ripping off the mask, they built all these masks um, for uh, Andrea Riseborough, 
or they built Sean Bean's face so they could break the teeth out of it. And stuff like that, I feel like, is such a classic marker of body horror. And I just mm-hmm. found those elements to be, like, really cool. You know, as as filmmakers, I think that, you know, we all kind of look at different parts of it. And for me, I always look at those effects. I'm like, oh, my God, it would be so cool to do these, like, practical effects. Like, I keep going back to it, but the breaking of the teeth, I was like, oh, I can't even look at this. Yeah, there was a moment too where, and I think it's like our first introduction to the practical nature of the effects in the film where she's going to go in and kind of possess Christopher Abbott's character for the first time. And the, the, the guy like helping her, the scientist, like, this is going to be like a difficult transition. She's mm-hmm. like, just do it. And you see her and she literally like melts down, like her skin yeah. melts, her fingers melt like a candle. And you could tell that they had built a wax replica of her, mm-hmm. melted it down, put it in fast motion, and then put it in reverse where she was kind of like reforming herself inside the her psyche inside the body of someone else it was like really effective and very visceral and it kind of it, it definitely gave you a feeling more than just like some cgi yeah it, in the the featurette that they released they talked about that exact scene and those masks that they had made they used for a lot of different things in the movie specifically in that kind of scene where they're vying for control but it was actually that was the final thing that they shot was the scene with the melting down because they just they were like well, it's the last day of filming. These are the last masks that we have. We're going to melt them. And here's the shot. And here we go. And I think that was fantastic. And where can people see that? Because that could be interesting for people to watch who hear our review and want to watch the actual movie. I can send or I can put the link in the story when the episode goes up. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'd like to watch it myself because I do think that was uh, one of the movie's strong points. I felt like that scene too, that that it wasn't the final scene, but it was sort of like the final dramatic scene in the movie where the her son was laying there with the, the other guy uh, that he had stabbed in that pool mm-hmm. of blood. It was sort of really beautiful yeah, in, in yeah. a disturbing way. Like I did, so there were moments like that that I, that I did like. Uh, I'm just, I feel overall wasn't my cup of tea. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I like this discourse though, like this kind of like verbal melee sort of back and forth because this movie, whether you loved it or you didn't, um, it really was very thought provoking. I said it was really intimate to the point of like being uncomfortable. It's voyeuristic on like another level. It's sexual. It's really visual. And um, I think everybody should go watch Possessor. I would have liked to see them explore it a little more. I mean, because the idea of possessing or going into someone else's brain it would have been interesting to see them maybe review their memories or you know more about how they thought or things i feel like they could have went a little deeper on the concept personally do you guys think they handled i mean obviously maybe you know i don't know maybe you guys didn't think about that aspect of it but i do think since we all had such a different take on it you know it's interesting to see uh what you guys think about those things not to be like oh i love that you did like it but i do like that you had such a kind of your own kind of visceral reaction to it especially with the like the possession aspect because i had no idea what to expect of the possession going in but i i kind of quickly started to realize oh it's not so much possession so much as it's just like taking almost kind of like mechanical robotic control of this like fucking meat vessel and that's the part that i liked is it felt really detached and it felt like it wasn't like a possession like she wasn't like you know, oh, I'm I'm this person. And in kind of backing up what Swan had said, um, Christopher Abbott's performance as Colin possessed by Tasia, I thought was a really amazing way of showing like, 
there's an uncomfortable nature to it. Like it's someone else piloting this kind of skeleton. And I think a different movie, you know, I would have loved to see more like, okay, well, what is this process like? But the fact that we were kind of kept from that information, I feel like, you know, kind of added to that sense of, I'm just, I I am my own skeleton wearing a meat mask, like watching this movie. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but you know what it was, was kind of interesting and they only hinted to it a little bit is that the girlfriend immediately picked up on the the awkwardness of yeah her partner once once you know the the main character's pres- presence was in his body and i felt like that too i mean can you imagine like your partner you know you know when they're off or if they were acting mm-hmm. like a completely different person it would be obvious immediately probably oh, yeah. to a point where you would not be cool with it or just be like what's wrong with you today okay i'm going to work I'll wait until you stab me in the face later in the movie, you know? <laughs> okay, wait. That's like totally a page out of my book. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you would see that, that that could have been interesting if she just sort of like refused it outright, you know, from that moment mm-hmm. on. But mm. Anyways, it sounds like you guys definitely recommend this movie, yeah? Oh, yeah. I, I've spoken my piece. I think it's really thought-provoking, and I think everyone should check it out. Yeah, I agree. I think it's not a movie for everyone. I don't expect everyone to like it. I do think if you're a fan of body horror and if you are a fan of bleak, brutal horror, definitely check it out. I mean, there's a good dose of science fiction here too. So I think this could appeal to um, some sci-fi uh, fans as as well as horror people alike. Listen, the kind of movies that come out, I think it's definitely worth a watch. It wasn't my favorite, but I definitely think it was interesting. So I also recommend people to watch it. I mean, it definitely wasn't New Mutants, I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. There were a couple other this year, too. But uh, people are like, well, you guys don't do bad movie reviews. I'm like, well, because we don't tell you about the ones we don't like. (laughs) I'm like, it's called having taste, honey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't like to bag people's project. Usually, if I feel like, even if we don't necessarily love the film, you know, usually we'll we'll be like, this movie, let's review this one because at least there's interesting things to talk about. And Mm -hmm. if if a movie's just terrible, we're just not going to review it or watch it. Yeah, and and we almost went back on our own mantra there by suggesting that we were going to watch uncle peckerhead and i think all of us were kind of holding our <laughs> breath because we're like holy shit now we've said it we have to watch it but it was it was a great pleasant surprise oh Definitely. god i want to rewatch uncle peckerhead i mean obviously not to like re-review for the podcast but that's just to put that back out there into the universe if you haven't seen uncle peckerhead definitely check it out that is like a creatures of the night stamp of approval movie yeah. oddly right you would never guess that the three of us would have liked that movie and we did um which goes to show that you know you don't need a lot of money to make a good movie either that's Very right true. tens 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 across the board i do want to put a suggestion out there because people at home want to watch the movies with us so that when we're discussed it, we're not giving away spoilers and i can't i'm doing myself a disservice because i did not look up the name of this movie but there is a new movie that is on shutter that i'd really like to watch um it's something about a submarine that was lost at sea i think there's something to do with nazis or something and ghosts i don't know what it's called but it should be easy enough to find with those uh couple of keywords and i think everyone should watch that and then we can discuss it on the next episode is it called the chamber i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well never mind well, we'll, we'll post you. about it in the story 
Thank you, Daphne and Velma. That is our Scooby-Doo <laughs> mystery. And hopefully you guys can figure it out by the next episode. Oh <laughs> right. No. All, all right. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we return, we'll be answering listener questions and moving into our favorite supernatural segment, Hauntings of History. Don't move. Arda Wiggs has been serving looks in the drag and costume community since 2009. Their reputation in the wig world is well known for providing luscious, thick, snatchingly good styles that turn heads and ensure you are serving the most devilish of looks. With over 100 colors and 80 styles to choose from, they're sure to have something to make you scream. Use the code ARDABOULE10 for 10% off at arda-wigs.com and treat yourself to something truly hair-raising. Welcome back to Creatures of the Night. It's time for Swan and I to answer some of our listener questions. So, Ian, if you would do us the honor and read the questions, we will be happy to answer them. Absolutely. Leonardo asks, I'm a Brazilian ugly, big fan of the show, and I would like to know, how do we send the audition tapes? Well, I love big Brazilian uglies. Let me just put that out there. Um, but I also want to reassure that Leonardo will have all the information he needs once we, you know, give out the audition information. Yeah, we have unfortunately once again had to pull back on opening up auditions. Like we mentioned, we are in a safer at home phase in Los Angeles again. And it really just doesn't feel right to ask people to put audition tapes together when there's a fucking pandemic happening and people have very low resources and we're giving it some thought to figure out exactly how to do it, but we will update you as soon as possible. Marie writes, if you could only lip sync or perform to one artist or band or song for the rest of your life, what or who would you choose? I would say Susie and the Banshees. I think that Susie's music just speaks across the board from album to album to album to like any one of our looks. So you know we're going to look good and Susie's going to lay down something deadly and I'd be happy to perform to it anytime. I'm going to go with Susie too. I thought that as well because the library is so huge. Uh, it would suck to be limited to one person, but I think if it had to be anyone, Susie would be a good choice. Mm-hmm. Lukey says... I wanted to know whether season three and resurrection will be available in Germany someday. We're really dying to watch it here, but I can't find a place to watch. I would tell Luki to tell all of their friends to tag shutter and just tell them that they want to see it in Germany. Um, I think that's the, the best route to go. I know they've opened it up to a few new countries recently based on demand. So if they push, I think it'll happen. And I definitely see, uh, the Blade Brothers Dragula season four coming out in Germany the same time it will everywhere else. That's my feeling. And let's just put this out there. We would love for Luki and all other people in Germany to be able to see the show and future seasons of the show. And we look forward to the time when we return to Berlin to perform for the Germans again. Ugh, just putting my two cents in. Berlin was so much fun. Oh, it was so it was, good. It really God, was. God, the energy there was so good. Ooh, mm-hmm. let's go back. 
Glasgow is great too. I mean, there are so many stops when we do like the UK and Euro tour that I think our aesthetic just speaks to people there in in like a different way and um, you can feel it. Heather writes in, I'm curious about your thoughts on the rising interest in horror. Do you think it's correlated to the increase in economic and societal instability or maybe it's due to other factors? Hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, do I think that there's something cathartic about watching horror movies during a time when there's a lot of like mental stress in the background of everybody's everyday life? I think that's I think that's valid. I also think that horror is having like a renaissance, like some of these psychological horrors that are had that have been coming out in the past maybe 2 to 5 7 years have been like exceptional and incredible and like well acted and well thought out and well scripted. So I think people are looking at horror with a lot more respect in general. Yeah, I think uh, movies like Hereditary and Us and, you know, they're they're sort of a smarter version of horror movies that we haven't seen probably since, I don't know, maybe the 60s. And they're critically acclaimed. They're making a lot of money. So I think that's maybe opening the doors for more other horror of that, you know, other smart horror to be made that is valuable to these companies. Crystal wants to know, do you think there will be a time where Dragula gets to be too much or you get sick of it? Like, more work than it's worth or too much popularity or too hard to keep your personal life separate? Just, I don't know. Can you ever see yourselves losing passion for it? I'll say for myself, um, yes, I can see myself doing that. You know, we've created a lot of iconic properties in the past, whether they be uh, nightlife projects or like the show or whatever. And it's all based on our inspiration. So as long as we're inspired by it, we'll give it our all. But the minute we stop being inspired, we will pull the plug on something fast. We are not afraid to change drastically and radically. Um, Luckily, we're still super inspired by the show. So I don't see that happening anytime soon. But absolutely, I could see that happening one day. Yeah, I want to kind of double down on on what Drax said, but also I also want to emphasize that I do genuinely feel like we're just getting started, kind of scratching the surface on the tombstone of Dracula. I, I think that there's a lot to unearth and dig up and a lot of other artists that we get the opportunity to feature, and we're not done. <laughs> <laughs> Love that answer. Rebecca writes in, On the Blair Brothers Dragula, I love that the loser gets murdered in an interesting way at the end of each show, and that each episode's death scene usually ties into the theme of the challenge. But some of the death scenes puzzle me. For example, Disasterine and Erica's had nothing to do with the challenge. Why do some match the episode and some don't? Well, if you look at seasons two and three and just compare and contrast them, you know, we had a different kind of set of resources. It was a different budget. And we actually had a little bit more time to craft exactly what we wanted to do with those death scenes. We always wanted them to connect, but there was just, you know, kind of mechanical and sort of production barriers that wouldn't allow us to do that, mostly like in the first and second season. But it wasn't until the third season where we were able to kind of like spend what we needed to spend and change the schedule so that every challenge and every challenge death scene matched. Raphael asks, Drac, how was your November 1st? (laughs) Right, I forgot we talked about that. I remember Swan, we were talking about how we're usually dead on November 1st. (laughs) Yeah. I will report that November 1st was, I don't even remember it. It was very uneventful, to be honest with you. I don't know. Maybe we did something interesting, but I wasn't exhausted. Um, I don't remember anything sticking out. Actually, I'm being dishonest. I remember waking up on November 1st, and I don't know why. I just remember this. It jolted my memory. Uh, 
being completely over jack-o'-lanterns and Halloween. And I literally went through the house and ripped out everything that had to do with Halloween (laughs) (laughs) and removed it from my site. (laughs) So it was sort of uh, memorable in a way. I think I was Halloweened out by then. We started early and we finished strong and I was done. So, So there you go. Not removed it from your site. <laughs> I sure did. I literally did <laughs> very thoroughly too, which is a, a definitely an aspect of Drac. Like once this, the decision has been made, it's full force from zero to a hundred. In day. fact, I think you were still sleeping when I got started. <laughs> I was like, let me just let Drac answer it because it was pointed at you. But that's my two cents. I wasn't even out of bed, which I usually get up first. <laughs> so by the time I got up, I'm like. It was like, I don't know, like a little kid on Christmas morning, but reverse through crack. I was like, wait, where did Halloween go? It's gone. (laughs) I remember stomping down the hall with like this gigantic (laughs) pumpkin. Like it was a movie and just opening this like antique trash chute, just boom. And it was empty. So I just heard it slowly descend and crash. And I was like, Halloween is over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow the end oh <laughs> uh, louis says how did you both construct and decide upon your individual drag names also were they created prior to the title of the belay brothers dragula so um yeah the name the belay brothers was created way before our individual names were and for the longest time um people just referred to us as the Belay Brothers. Nobody referred to us individually. And even when we would do interviews and things, it would I would just say, just put the Belay Brothers. So it was like we were answering in unison. And it wasn't until, uh, I believe it was when we got on the cover of Frontiers Magazine, and the writer insisted that we refer to ourselves individually. And it really pissed me off. I mean, we kept going back and forth. But I'm like, I really don't want to lose this fucking cover over this. So fine. So we did have these names, but we had never told anybody. So that's what forced us to bring them out of the closet. And I don't know if we ever would have, honestly, if people had just left us alone about it. I'm kind of glad they did, though, honestly. I think it, it, it just expands the, the mythology. Yeah, I agree, too. Louis has a second question for you. Um, in the season two grand finale of the Belay Brothers Dragula, is there any particular reason as to why the two of you wore different wigs? This is a for shame moment for Louis mm. because, I mean, our costumes were direct references uh, as, and so were our hair to the same thing, which was the closing scenes um, from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, those costumes were just redesigns of the Transylvanian costumes from outer space when Riff Raff and Magenta come back down to sort of claim uh, Frankenfurter. Uh, and and take his life you know they come down and they have different hair and they're wearing their transylvanian costumes and one of them is very much updo and the other one isn't quite a uh you know mohawk but it's like a central top knot and the looks are kind of like evocative of that but it's a direct reference to that movie rhiannon asks drac keeps talking about redoing the worst witch movie which i would definitely like to see but (laughs) What did or do you think of the other versions of The Worst Witch? Would you take any elements from the various TV series to redo the movie? So I've recently looked into <laughs> I've recently looked into this because all I remembered was that old 70s or 80s, I don't know what it was, uh, version with Mrs. Garrett uh, as the witch and Tim Curry in it. So I, I don't know, like, these other... And, but then I noticed there's, like, multiple seasons on Netflix. Like, this... this concept has been thrown around quite a bit and it's sort of throwing a wrench in my plans because i'm like well obviously this 
this uh, IP is being used. You know what I mean? Like, it's definitely not forgotten. So I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I mean, it's going to have to be one of those magical things where just like the right producer listens to this podcast and is like, I want to make this happen. And they just make it happen. But as far as us um, pulling all of the franchises together into a new miraculous version, I don't see that happening unless there's a miracle, which maybe there is. For us, there's only really one source material and it's the original. It's, the horrible one with Tim Curry and Charlotte Ray, a.k.a. Mrs. Garrett. Like, that's the one that we know. We don't even know the, t- the other TV series. L. Gullen writes, Hi, I've been re-listening to all the podcast episodes, and hearing you talk about The Worst Witch made me wonder if- Oh my you- god! <laughs> I mean- <laughs> This is unreal. Oh my god. Jack, 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 did you write this? <laughs> no. Oh my god. I love it. Well, El Golan really does want to know if you've seen the 2018 version of it. It's been made into a series and three seasons out of the four are on Netflix. I've seen it. It's definitely very cheesy and childish. I'm honestly, I'm convinced the characters all share one collective brain cell, but it was also interesting <laughs> to learn more about the origin. Um, no. Again, we have not seen this at all. And I don't know. I mean, it. Whatever. Why? Well, uh, now I want. I want credit. Like, if everyone's going to start watching the worst witch again, I want a fucking percentage. Like everyone else takes out of my ass. <laughs> Maybe we need to watch this. These. Uh these seasons on netflix they sound awful i mean li- literally it's like harry Potter. i mean the worst witch is the original harry potter don't get it twisted like that's the truth right i mean it's, it is yeah. or sabrina or whatever the hell it's the same shit <laughs> <laughs> i'm so tempted to say that the next one is about the worst witch too but i won't put you through that <clears throat> okay lily writes On the most recent episode, I heard Swan talk about mythology, and before, I've heard her talk about being Greek, so I was wondering if she or either of you liked Greek mythology or got into it, and if Swan spoke Greek at all. I mean, I do speak a very little bit of Greek. I probably understand more than I can speak. We really just didn't use it very much in my household growing up, even though I'm first generation. And I think I can speak for both of us saying like we are we really love and are inspired by mythology in general so that that doesn't exclude Greek mythology. Yeah, I used to love Greek mythology when I was uh, in college. I would like research it for hours. I was really into it. A really interesting book about Amazons and whether or not they were actually real or if they were completely fictional, which this is an interesting story, led me to where the Amazons are actually supposed to be from, a physical place in Greece, which ironically is the place that Swan's relatives are from. That's right. It's a very, it's a, it's a very specific uh, area in northern Greece, and it's the place where the Amazons were supposed to have been from. So, yeah. And I, and I was kind of obsessed with Greek mythology, too, growing up. Like, whenever we had the opportunity to do, like, a book report or, you know, any goddess of the world, I always was, like, gravitated toward the Greek mythology, specifically, like, Artemis, too. I feel like I've always been, like, a creature of the night um, because she's, like, the moon huntress, and I was just kind of obsessed as a kid. So, yeah. I always liked Athena. She seemed very harsh and regal and judgmental, and I uh, modeled my drag after her. <laughs> you certainly did. Well, <laughs> you know what? Bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> and you are the hunty of the moon. Fantastic. That's right. Wow. <laughs> the moon hunty. 
<laughs> what is Ian then? <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't think that fast today. Not today. <laughs> Not tonight, honey. Um, if I had to, I think it would probably be some weird warped version of Persephone who's like, oh God, I have to go down to the underworld for six months out of the, oh God. But I love it. <laughs> a lot of Bill Ray plays in the background. <laughs> totally. Hades has a huge beard. It's a whole thing. <clears throat> Jason writes, I have a question about Dracmorda's name. I'm sorry if this has been said before, but I'm wondering if your name is a combination of Dracula and Bavmorda. No, but that is a good guess. Yeah. It actually has nothing to do with any of those. I just play with syllables and uh, different things when we were first designing our names, and it has nothing to do with any of that. But it sounds like it does, so let's go with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't canonize say, it. No, we are fans of both, though. And, and I've heard recently that they might remake Willow, which I am completely against because i hate all of these remakes i'm like leave the legends of our of childhood and you know the mythologies and movies of 30 years ago alone danny writes i just wanted to let you know that i shrieked with excitement when ian mentioned my favorite horror comic artist junji ito i remember reading the ending of uzumaki in a bathtub at 4 a.m and because the story is about spirals i was too scared to drain the bathtub and i left it full until the next morning his art is super visceral and it is a must-see for anyone who loves horror this led me to wonder anytime you get a bunch of horror nerds and comic book geeks together there are bound to be bonding moments when people realize that they share the same niche fandom do y'all have any moments on set where you realized you shared a favorite lesser known fandom with a contestant or crew member? Uh, I can't get by this imagery of, of uh, this writer scared to pull the plug on the bathtub before I am. I kind of live for that. Like, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> not that I can, I, I can't pull anything right now. What about you, Drac? I mean, I think me and you riff on a lot of things like that, you know, like constantly we we get inspiration from things from the past. We're like, oh, my God, what about this little weird scene in a comic book from like 30 years ago sure, um, or something like that? And I think we do similarly with the crew. As far as the competitors, not really, although... <laughs> <laughs> why why do i tell these stories i don't care i'm telling it <laughs> i will say this so when we were on tour in um in europe with the competitors uh me and swan have this disagreement about some terminology because i grew up in the south and she grew up in the north no but uh you know she grew up you know, in the Northeast. And so terminology is different. So, uh, for example, a grocery cart, how we refer to that, or, you know, what you wash your clothes with, things like that. Uh, and I never have anybody on my side. I never have anybody on my side. So Swan refers to a shopping cart as a carriage, right? Like some horses and some Cinderella pumpkin <laughs> things going to pull up and go shopping with you. As and it should be. <laughs> Well, while we were on tour with Priscilla and Louisiana, who are in the South, I asked them, what do you call, you know, a shopping cart? And they said, a buggy. Well, buggy, what else would you call it? And that's the first time that I was finally confirmed and I had people on my side that it was a buggy. So this is really has very little to do with the question, but it seems slightly relevant. So there you go. Thank you for telling the buggy story yet again. <laughs> there was another term. Oh, yeah. And there's a difference in what you use to scrub like, uh, you know, like industrial cleaner for your house. And you guys use what? Are you talking about detergent? Yeah. You know, like uh, like what you would scrub like your like bathtub Ajax. or something with. Ajax, right. Well, for us, it's common. And they also answered that correctly. So 
little bit. I don't know why the hell we're talking about this, but what? It just let's let's move on. <laughs> this is a weird fucking episode. <laughs> I love that they answered correctly. Correctly, <laughs> That's a little window into the way draft things. <laughs> Frederico from Argentina says, "What was it like working with the queens on the season two Scream Queens challenge?" I thought working with the queens on the season two Scream Queen challenge was really fun because the number of competitors was sort of like brought down to like a reasonable amount where we were able to give each girl at the time, you know, a lot of control. And some of them really took to that. Um, I remember Bitch specifically was really specific about how I'd like to do this scene like this and I want this detail and let's get a close up here. And I was really impressed. Um, you know, and other people maybe had a little bit more of a difficult time trying to say, okay, I can direct this and I'm going to act in it. But I mean, that was the basis of the challenge and it allowed us to see them in a very creative, demanding position. And it was fun. Yeah, I agree. It was great to get to know them all better. I thought they each had a really unique take on the challenge. Um, It was hard because that was the episode that we had to let Erica go. And I really didn't want to let anybody go at that point. I felt like we had become really close to that particular group at that point. And it was was a hard decision to make. Um, But yeah, it was a fantastic time. And on that, you have to say namaste, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Nathan writes, what is one thing you consider essential to your drag? And what is your favorite part about taking it all off? Mm, essential i guess i would say it's it's really the the black wing you know that's something that tons of, of drag performers do but i think ours is pretty particular um and i think that that's a really defining element of our drag as far as what my favorite part about taking it all off i mean nothing beats like unhinging a corset or some strappy ridiculous thing that you have to wear i mean i i will say when you're in all that for you know up to like 10 hours when you take it off it feels glorious Mm, god that's the truth Uh, and i just want to explain for people that may not know what the black wing is that's like uh your eye makeup like when you it's like you lift your arm and with that black (laughs) under there that you used to fly around the set yeah when you trans transmogrify into your bat form that (laughs) no i'm gonna say i'm gonna say our eyes like the way uh you know our contact lenses, whether we look like we have no pupils at all or it's all black or all red. I mean, I think that we've appeared publicly maybe once or twice, like just so few times without contact lenses. So for me, I I feel like that's very transformative. At least when I pop them in, I feel like the transformation is like becoming complete. And depending on the night, like truth, there is nothing like taking off the corset, but if your shoes are hurting you and you get home that night and you take them off, that is like... I mean, that is just like next level elation. Nothing could feel better. I do like ripping off eyelashes too. That that's a nice feeling because to me, eyelashes are very annoying. You know, they're super annoying. They, I don't know. They give me like a weird headache half the time too. I think there there must be some sort of like pressure point thing in your eyelid. But, anyways, that's another one. That is all the questions I have for you guys this time. Thank you, Ian, for uh, delivering all those questions. We want to thank our listeners for sending those questions in. It is quickly becoming one of our favorite parts of the podcast. It's time to move on to this episode's Haunting of History. 
For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown. In 1981, the small town of Brookfield, Connecticut, was rocked by the first murder to take place in the town's 190-year history. The victim, Alan Bono, was stabbed four times in the chest with a five-inch folding blade by 19-year-old Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, a tree trimmer living in Brookfield. Witnesses to the murder, including Johnson's fiance Debbie Glatzel, claimed that when Cheyenne stabbed Bono, his eyes took on a glossy look, and he began growling like an animal his guttural noises intercut with what could only be described as speaking in tongues. While the story may seem on the surface like a cut-and-dry murder case, the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson would become the first known court case in the United States in which the defense sought to prove innocence on the basis of demonic possession, earning the murder and the subsequent trial the title of The Demon Murder, better known as The Devil Made Me Do It Case. In 1980, the Glatzel family's life would forever be changed when 11-year-old David Glatzel wandered off from their home to a nearby well on the property. When David returned, he claimed to have encountered a man who threatened to kill him and pushed him before retreating into the nearby woods. David's sister, Debbie Glatzel, and her fiancé, Cheyenne, wrote this story off as the byproduct of an overactive imagination. But David would further claim additional visits from the man and began to describe his visitor having, quote, big black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hooves. As David's encounters with the man began to increase, so did the paranormal events surrounding David that led the Glatzel family to believe that something more sinister had occurred that day on the property. They believed that he was possessed by the devil. In interviews with the Glatzels, David's family members said that he would kick, bite, spit, and swear in Latin, and even went so far as to allege that David would levitate from his bed, only to be thrown back down violently, with burns and bruise marks appearing on his neck. Cheyenne Johnson stayed with the Glatzel family and his fiancée Debbie, and attempted to help during this traumatic time, although his inclusion in the supernatural events would come to a head after the arrival of infamous self-styled demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren, 12 days after the initial demonic contact. Ed and Lorraine Warren, noted at the time for their investigations into the Amityville haunting and now famous for the Conjuring series of films inspired by their work, were called to the Glatzel family as a last resort. David's visions of the devil had begun to seep into his waking hours, and as his visions continued, suspicious noises began emanating from the attic of the Glatzel home. Described in the book The Devil in Connecticut, The noises were those of animals growling and sinister laughter that would grow in intensity as the Glatzel family approached, only to immediately silence upon entering the attic. When the Warrens arrived at the Glatzel family home, Lorraine Warren reported seeing, quote, a dark, misty form next to David, which alerted her to the fact that the Glatzel family were in fact dealing with a true demonic possession. At this point, the Glatzels, along with the Warrens, petitioned the local church to perform three lesser exorcisms, where four priests from St. Joseph's Church in Brookfield were said to have been in attendance. On the night of the final exorcism, the Glatzels were beginning to lose faith in the Warrens, as well as the hope that David would ever be rid of the demonic forces that had begun to take a physical toll on the child. 
According to reports of the exorcism, David's body violently rose from the bed he was tied to when Cheyenne grabbed David and screamed, Take me instead! Leave David alone! At which point, David fell back to the bed and the Warrens asserted the exorcism to have been complete. Following the exorcism, the Warrens issued a warning to the Glatzel family. Avoid the well on the property at all costs especially to Johnson, who the Warrens believed had potentially antagonized the demon and should take extreme caution in matters of the supernatural. Following this warning, whether out of arrogance or something more sinister, Cheyenne went to the well, claiming that something was pulling him there. And when he arrived, he claimed to see the same man that David had seen prior to his own demonic possession. As the dust settled at the Glatzel home, Debbie and Cheyenne moved into an apartment above the Brookfield Pet Motel, where Debbie was employed by the owner, Alan Bono, as a dog groomer. According to testimony provided in the trial, Debbie claimed that during this time, she feared that Cheyenne had encountered the same demon that had possessed her younger brother, as he began to growl in his sleep and would wake in a cold sweat, screaming that he had seen the beast, only to fall back to bed without recalling the nightmarish events. On February 16, 1981, Cheyenne Johnson called in sick to work and joined Debbie at the Brookfield Pet Motel, where Alan Bono took the two out to lunch, and where the three reportedly drank heavily prior to a verbal altercation between Bono and Johnson. It was at this point that witnesses recall Johnson slumping over and becoming silent, before lurching up, his body twisting into a gnarled shape and growling like an animal, lunging at Bono with a folding blade, stabbing him in the chest. According to Johnson's lawyer during the trial, the most severe wound was one that stretched all the way from Bono's stomach to the base of his heart. On October 28, 1981, the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson began, with the defense claiming that although Johnson did stab Bono, Johnson was not in control of his body. The devil made him do it. Over the course of the month-long trial, the defense continually argued for the existence of not only the devil, but of the demonic possession that caused Johnson to murder Bono. On November 24, 1981, after a three-day deliberation, Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter and sentenced to 20 years in prison for the death of Alan Bono. While the media frenzy surrounding the trial had grown to a fever pitch, the court ultimately decided that there was not enough physical evidence of the initial possession of David Glatzel and the subsequent transfer of possession to Johnson to rule in his favor. While Johnson was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the death of Alan Bono, he was released only five years into his sentence, with parole officers claiming that his behavior in prison led more credence to the idea that, whether it was the work of the devil or some other more scientific lapse in his mental state, Johnson was not fully responsible for his actions. In the time since the events of The Devil Made Me Do It case, there have been both books and movies created to dramatize the events, leading some in the Glatzel family to speak out about what they believe to be the truth. David Glatzel's brother, Carl, sued the author of the book and the Warrens, claiming that they took advantage of his family and his brother, David, who was suffering from a learning disability and fabricated the events as a response to trauma that was happening in the Glatzel home during the time. While the events of the demon murder case may be difficult for skeptics to believe, the accounts are harrowing, maybe even more so than the dramatizations that have been created in the years since. Following Johnson's release from prison, he and Debbie Glatzel were quickly married and have maintained their shared belief in not only Johnson's innocence, but also in the paranormal. As for Debbie Glatzel, she has never wavered in her feelings about the possession of her younger brother and the nightmare she lived through. When interviewed following Johnson's release from prison, Debbie gave this quote. Arnie started showing the same signs my brother did when he was under possession. 
He should have never gone to that well. You never take that step. You never challenge the devil. That's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for joining us. Remember to pick up your copy of The Hellbound Heart and finish her before our next episode. If you have questions for us about Creatures of the Night or any of our projects, please email us at creatures at bouletbrothersdragula.com. Until next time, darlings. The Boulet Brothers Creatures of the Night is hosted and produced by Drakmorda and Swanthula Boulet, along with co-host and producer Ian DeVogler, in association with Dread Central. Edited and mixed by Ernesto Hortada, with music by Neuron Spectre. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.